You are listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Welcome to the Trans Podcast. I am Rosanna Longobetter. Today, we will take you on a walk-talk tour of Jack's Solar Garden and learn more about how community solar can increase access to clean energy technologies to address climate change. So over the course of the year working with Boulder County, we were able to update the land use code so that instead of regulating us to 100 kilowatts on our property just for on-farm use, we are able to build up to seven acres of um, solar rate infrastructure with our farm being less than 70 acres in size. They, that opened up not just our farm, but over 50 farms across the county that could do the same thing if they so chose. So I uh, haven't, haven't seen anybody actually do it as of yet, but I've been trying to work with a couple other farms to see about it. At the same time, we want to bid with Excel Energy to figure out uh, if we could be part of their community solar garden program. They gave us the largest rec price that they had ever given anyone at the time. That was uh, $57 a rec, 3% escalator. And these days when I take a look at their community solar rewards program, they're actually offering their standard offer for like 500 kilowatts or less, uh, between 60 and $80 per rec. So I like to think maybe we helped to kick Excel into paying a little bit more for recs. Uh, so that was at the end of 2018. In 2019, we decided to start up Jack Solar Garden. Uh, we had been meeting with Jordan over at NREL, uh, Greg down at University of Arizona, uh, folks at Colorado State University, learning more about how else could we incorporate agriculture into a solar array here on site. Kickstarted Jack Solar Garden, and, and in 2020, we built it. Uh, and so we've been in operation for about 20 months. This is going to be our second, this is our second season of growing crops uh, with Sprout City Farms and our researchers out on site. And 2021 was our, our first kickoff year, but I won't spoil a lot of what they learned. So right now we can stroll on out to the field. I just warn you, it is an active farm, so there will be irrigation pipes. Uh, uh, parts of the ground are a little uneven, so just please watch your steps. Come on through. Over here, uh, for folks, this is where we used to keep all of our hay. We stored up to 3,000 bales, not just from our farm, but from all the farms in the area around us. Probably about 300 acres in to come out, learn more about our site. Our first year, we had artists that did um, repurposed farm materials into artwork and sold it in the community. Last year, we had a, a dancer on the farm and she did some dance education workshops with kids, hired a professional dancer, dance team to go out and she, they filmed it and so they're touring around with it. And this year, we have a, a photographer that's our artist on the farm. So just figuring out all the different ways that at Jack Solar Garden, we can incorporate the community more into it. And as you walk out here, what you see is uh, 3,276 solar panels. It's a 1.2 megawatt DC system. 
960 kilowatts AC, enough for about 300 homes in our area. Uh, most folks, when they typically look at the system, you notice that the panels are up a bit higher. I think the torque tube height typically in Colorado is roughly four feet. Whereas over here on the east side of the property, we have it up to eight feet. And then over here on the, the west side, it's about seven and a half feet here and goes towards uh, six feet in the northwest corner. Uh, this allows our researchers to be able to learn more about the different uh, microclimates underneath our panels that they'll be able to talk to a little bit more later. Uh, this covers just over four acres of land on an eight acre field. We had plenty of different easements that we had to deal with from uh, 110 foot easement from the middle of the road over there to a ditch easement on this side to having a, a water pipe underground on the north end of the pasture. So we couldn't build the solar array any larger, but that allowed us other opportunities for uh, putting in a pollinator habitat we'll talk about later and having more access for vehicles and other things around the site here. Byron Kominek is the owner of Jack's Solar Garden. He describes the layout so of the farm and the history friends. of what has become what they call the best agrivoltaics project in the country. He explains how they put the farm as collateral to be able to afford to build the system. Byron Kominek, owner of Jack's Solar Garden, and we put our farm up as collateral. Um, so we literally bet the farm on being able to sell electricity into the community. Plus we had different residents and local governments that helped pay up front for their subscriptions for five, 10 or 20 years that helped us be able to afford building this system. And then we have our businesses, um, uh, Terrapin Care Station, In the Flow Cannabis, uh, Premier Members Credit Union, Western Disposal and Meaty that pay us on a monthly basis for the electricity that they provide or that we provide them. And that helps the operations continue. Kominek explains what agrovoltaics consists of. As part of agrovoltaics, it's uh, that co-location of solar with agriculture underneath it. So we're testing out a variety of different types of agriculture. Our friends at Sprouse City Farms will talk about their spot here in a moment. But down here at the south end, uh, we're working with a company called Wish Garden Herbs to learn more about the different types of herbs that we can grow within a system. So we have uh, motherwort, lemon balm, this is bone set, uh, an eastern uh, type of herb. We have clary sage over there. If you duck down, valerian and other types of sages that we're testing out to see which of these work better uh, within our system. So maybe that's something that we could help uh, figure out how to roll out on other solar rays in the future, especially if they have less water. Common huh? yeah. <laughs> says that the local regulations from the city of Boulder and Boulder County are supporting their efforts and gives examples of the grow houses and the big homes that choose to subscribe to a local community solar garden. All supporting what we're doing out here. I love the local regulations that help support us. Uh, both City of Boulder and Boulder County had uh, extra taxes on cannabis companies. They charged them over two cents per kilowatt hour extra for having grow houses within the community. So a small grow house that might have one gigawatt hour of usage over the course of the year has to spend $20,000 on taxes in the City of Boulder, Boulder County. If it's a larger grow house, they might have five gigawatt hours that they consume. That's over $100,000 that they would be spending on taxes. or they could subscribe to a local community solar garden. And so we had a couple of cannabis companies that were able to subscribe to us to help support what we're doing out here, thanks to local regulations. For every kilowatt hour they purchase from us, they don't have to pay taxes to the local government on that. 
Yeah. Uh, they also had requirements on homes that were built over 5,000 square feet that if they, if they were over 5,000 square feet, then they have to be net zero. So either they had to have on-site renewable energy sources or they could find a local community solar garden to subscribe into. This helped find me a lot of clients that supported what we were doing out here. And thanks to local government, we were able to do this. But now I will pass it off to our friends over at Sprout City Farms. <laughs> Hi. Thank you, Byron. My name is Meg. I'm the, the founding farmer of Sprout City Farms. We started as an urban agriculture nonprofit based in Denver uh, 12 years ago in 2010. Uh, and now we have to change our definition of ourselves being out here. <laughs> We've branched out of the city. Um, so we got started here. We broke ground last spring um, and started tilling up the soil, building the beds, laying out the drip irrigation. Um, we had a partial season last year. Um, it, uh, it, we had some construction delays with the irrigation and everything. So um, we got planted in like late June, early July. Um, and so we're really excited to have a full season this year and um, to be really focusing on our partnership with the, the researchers at University of Arizona and NREL and everybody um, to really nail down how to scale up the research methodologies um, that University of Arizona has used in Tucson at their plot. Uh, it's significantly smaller <laughs> than this. Do we know how many thousand square feet? Arizona. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's like it's like the size one, of where we're standing yeah, right here. It's, it's like one hundred the size <clears throat> of this. Yeah. Yeah. So to be able to take some of the things that they've been looking at and scale it up to production scale agriculture is really important. So that when we report out findings and share what we've learned with other farmers, it's really knowledge that they can use and apply. That is Meg Kali, executive director of Sprouts City Farms reflecting on how the biggest barriers for young farmers is land access. Um, but how we came to be here uh, was not only because we like to look at innovative practices for agriculture, starting with urban and now going agrivoltaics, um, but also we've been looking for more land to help beginning farmers and first-generation farmers test out their business plans. So the, one of the biggest barriers to entry into agriculture as a career for young farmers and folks who don't have a family farm to inherit is that land access piece. Um, so we really have been looking for places where we could provide incubator plots for farmers in training, where they work alongside our experienced farm staff uh, and have some mentorship built in there. And some of the resources are available already. They can share the tools and the infrastructure, the wash station, the cold storage, everything like that. So in the coming years, we'll be allocating different uh, parts of the acreage over here. It's cover cropped this year while we build soil, uh, but we'll be allocating some of that land to incubator farmers. So we're really, really excited about that. Uh, that's something that we've been hearing from all of the interns and apprentices that we have trained over the last 12 years. We've had, I think, 150 some interns so far. Um, and everybody says, what's the next step? You know, it's really hard. Like you, you work on someone else's operation, but then to take the giant leap to starting your own farm, it's almost insurmountable. Meg Halley says that it is almost impossible to have access for beginner farmers who need farming training to get young people ready to grow food for the community. Land access, I mean, really it's capital, um, but it's, 
It's finding land to test out your business plan on. The USDA considers you a beginning farmer until you've been in it for 10 years because you only have one shot per season to figure out how to trellis your tomatoes or whatever. <laughs> so it's really, uh, it's, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of variables to manage. So you need some training wheels, you know? Um, and here in Boulder County, the county leases out ag land uh, to farmers, but you have to show a proven business plan. You have to have a track record. And there's like no way to get that really without a program like an incubator farm. So we've really been trying to find somewhere where we could do that. And so this is going to help us take the farmer training to the next level um, because the average age of a farmer is 65 and we really need more folks coming in to grow our food <laughs> for the future. So that's that's future plans here. May Kali says Sprouts City Farm donated fresh food to our center to address food justice issues. And also food access is a huge part of our mission. So we are a nonprofit. Um, we allocate half of our harvest from our other farms to food access programs for low-income households. Um, and so we have plans to do that here. Last year with the harvest that we were able to produce, we actually donated all of it to the local food pantry called the Our Center right here in Longmont. So that was 8,500 pounds is what we produced last year. What'd you grow? Oh, everything. <laughs> Name a vegetable. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of everything, but our approach last year was just a little more scattershot. Like, let's put the tomatoes in the middle rows where there's full sun because we think they're gonna like it better there and we can trellis them. Uh, whereas this year, I'll hand it off to Liza to talk about the the very methodical uh, approach that we're taking since we want to have some really good data sets uh, from the research to be able to share widely. Because um, this is the largest one in the country, right? So we're, we're trailblazing and um, we really want to make this knowledge available to other folks who want to test it out. And that's the other idea behind the incubator as well. There might be folks that want to specifically go into agrivoltaics, but there are so many challenges with it. Our team last year called it farming in an obstacle course. <laughs> that we want to give that test space to people. So, um, so Liza, do you want to talk more about what we've got going on this year? Sure, but let me just point out we stopped here. This is not yet our research site. And you did mention our food access uh, programs and our other uh, CSAs. We are growing a portion of our CSA um, crops uh, our, for our Denver CSAs up here. And I have uncovered them from there so that you can behold them. There are um, four types of kale growing and there's collards. There's uh, three different varieties of cabbage and there's a whole bunch of chard at the far end. We just pulled, we grew beautiful lettuce heads here and we're turning over these beds for a new crop. And all these um, vegetables that you see here are going to our our uh, CSAs and those CSAs, 50% of them go to people who really need them. And Meg's spent the past 12 years developing those connections. That is Lisa McConnell describing the vegetables growing, which goes to the people that really need it. She shows how the solar panels provide shade for the vegetables to help them thrive. So you'll notice that these Kale varieties are planted in blocks instead of rows. There are three beds in each lane. Um, the lane is the space between a set 
each set of solar panels. Um, each bed has a different percentage of light during over the course of the day. Um, this eastern bed gets um, shade in the morning, but it gets all the afternoon sun. The middle bed gets about 70% of sun um, compared to a full sun situation. And the west bed gets morning sun, as you can see right now, but gets protected in the afternoon. So that is why we are growing all the greens for our Denver farms up here, because these greens are rocking. And if you were growing these same vegetables out in the open sun, they would be much smaller, they'd be much more stressed. Um, when did you plant these? We planted these in May. Huh. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah it was, that was May. when we got our water on. Yeah, um, it was the first, it was, these were the first things to go in. Mm -hmm. We planted them in May. Um, we planted the lettuce that now has already gone through a cycle, been harvested, and we'll possibly be able to plant some more. Nobody, it's very hard to grow lettuce as big as we were able to um, here in the full sun in um, June. It, yeah. You know, we harvested in June. Um, usually they start to bolt and they start to get real bitter and it becomes yeah. really challenging. And those are very sought after vegetables in the farmer's markets. Are there certain lettuces that do better? Well, that's what we're trying to find we out. We have a few that we're trialing, <laughs> so but the greens in general, the greens have been not even double the size. They've been like five times the size wow. as they would have been if we'd grown them at our other farms. So we just had this idea over the winter last year. Why are we even trying to go greens at our other farms yeah. in the city in the full sun when we know they're going to rock it here? So that's the bok choy, I wish we hadn't oh. had to pull everything. The bok choy oh. was this big around. Are you serious? And this tall. And it would so have the been ones about I like in the that. The grocery are like yeah. that small. Yeah, they were, that's what I mean, like five times as big. Wow. So we know the greens love it. That's like not a question. That's <laughs> um, but what we'll be studying more rigorously are some of the more typical market crops, like the peppers and tomatoes yeah, and yeah. melons yeah. and things like that. McConnell mentions a program in Denver where you can install solar panels to grow food and explains the research they are doing to understand how the crops are reacting to the shade provided by the solar panels. And we, there's actually a very small incentive program going on in Denver right now where you can install some solar panels on a school um, campus and our first farm that we built in 2010 is on the grounds of a public school and we'd really like to have a little demonstration of agrivoltaics there to be able to show people that are in the city and can't get up here. McConnell again defines for the visitors what agrivoltaics is all about describing the combination of agriculture and solar panels. Agra is agriculture and voltaics is from photovoltaics, which is the fancy name for solar panels. So it's the system where agriculture and solar panel arrays are combined.
are listening to KGNU Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. We continue to listen to the walk talk tour of Jack's Solar Garden and learn more about how community solar can increase access to clean energy technologies to address climate change. Thank you. 
This is our, our research area with the University of Arizona, and we are growing, Sprout City's farms are the farmers growing the crops um, that we are um, researching. And you'll see that we have a lane uh, under the eight foot panels and an identical lane under the six foot uh -huh. panels. We have um, identical plantings of three varieties of beans. They're the same in each lane and they're the same in each bed so that we can look at the differences between the six foot and the eight foot solar structure and then uh, across the different shade conditions, light conditions in the three beds. So actually that was one thing of note too is that there's less variation in sun and shade on the eight foot side. That is right. Um, so generally build up their, a lot of knowledge from experience and we could make um, assumptions or guesses at how different crops would perform, which we, we did some of that last year, mm -hmm. right? But, um, and most farmers don't have time to set something up like this and they don't have yeah. the money. Yeah. And um, if, we can, if we can determine that a particular variety of bean does particularly well in a particular position, then you can develop a complicated perhaps, but um, most sort of effective crop plan based on the results of what we learn here. Um, so for me, this is a, a unique opportunity to do farming, which I love, um, and learning and be able to take care and time uh, with the, um, with the uh, different varieties. And it's just, yeah, it's a remarkable opportunity to gather information for farmers to yeah. understand how to make use of this. So in a really rigorous way. In a really <laughs> rigorous way as opposed to, yeah. This year is the year we're going to be collecting, writing every single thing down. Yeah. Last year we had some anecdotal observation about, we thought maybe some of the plants had more sensitivity to the sun because they spent so much time in the shade. Uh -huh. um, and so that was more just a casual observation, you know, yeah. but this year working with Amy. So Liza's the actually, uh, research yeah, farmer well. and Amy's the farm researcher. Yes. <laughs> and then crops researcher Amy Marble from the University of Arizona states how crucial it is to learn from the research to support upcoming farmers. So I'm partnered with University of Arizona and um, I'm the researcher on the ground. My job is basically to look at the plants all the time and see what looks different. So the dry spots you notice is something I make note of and I try to figure out like how many of those plants within each group have those dry spots. Is it different from A and C? You know, that yeah. kind of thing. I also look at like is uh, basil likes to bolt when it gets pretty warm. So in my control yeah. garden, I see basil bolting much sooner than I see it out here so far. but. It's the beginning of the season, as Meg has said, so we have no idea. We just have to do it over time. Um, and so I look at, you know, flowering, budding, like fruiting. Marvel describes the bitterness and sweetness of the vegetables while visitors taste the lettuce. It seems some bunnies have been enjoying them too. And so I look at, you know, flowering, budding, like fruiting, what time do they set? Um, pests. We have lots of pests, bunnies and bugs and 
everything in between <laughs> and they like to eat everything so you know our control garden has been kind of decimated by bunnies um, the beans have been chomped they're nothing they look nothing like this um, the lettuces have too um, we've harvested we haven't harvested the only thing we've harvested so far is greens so you'll notice the blank spot in the middle of those yeah. two greens that was the first one we harvested they were starting to bolt they were really bolty in the control garden out here they were starting we tasted them and they're definitely bitter but there's a definite difference between the control garden this isn't entirely fair because the bunnies got to this one but this is from our control plot we have a lot of bunnies as they water ship down <laughs> make it out here for the most part thankfully so the, all the outer leaves so we can't actually tell the size but this is from the 50 percent water uh, uh, bed in our control plot and this is it, the um for size comparison this is from our um 50 percent water uh bed and it's the middle so it's the one that gets the most sun uh, irrigated head of lettuce <laughs> okay gotta do our record keeping um this is from the control plot so full sun puny little guy and then ladybug passenger and then um this was grown with 50 percent irrigation water over here in the field from the shadiest bed so you can just like yeah take a leaf from each one or a half of a leaf yeah <laughs> and the water um the reduction in water is the thing that we are probably the most excited to study because we are in a severe drought here the ditch water that supplies this farm got cut off this year because we're in such a severe drought so this is going to be a really compelling thing for farmers in the west basically for us. Um, so we can grow equivalent crops Equivalent yield of crops with half the water we could see. Thousands and thousands. Oh my gosh, that's a huge difference. And the taste of it. Funny, huh? So much sweeter under the panels. I need to taste the second one. I only got the the one with the bunnies. The bunny, the bunny bites. The bunny bites. So I'm gonna try taste the other one. I want to taste the one without bunnies. It's clean. We pulled off the. Oh, they mushroom. They both is really good. Are y'all noticing? Mm -hmm. The one from the no after the bitter. Yeah, bitterness isn't there. Yeah. Which one is it? Ten. Okay. How is it that you were able to put this together? This is what I heard. The biggest solar panel garden here in Colorado. Oh, please, if I'm wrong, correct me. <laughs> Byron Kamenek, owner of Jack Solar Garden. Uh, from what I understand, it's the largest research site for agrivoltaics in the country that's also a commercial operation. A lot of other places, it's academic institutions um, or nonprofits that are building these and working within the system, or they have a lot of animals versus what we're doing out here with multiple different research partners, uh, working with nonprofits, working on a commercial uh, growing site too, to learn more about all these different spaces. But at the same time, you know, it's a commercial, but I have heard this morning that you're also providing last year, for example, access to good food for people that cannot afford it. So it's a combination of commercial, but also nonprofit and trying to move social justice and food justice to good food. Yeah. For those that cannot afford it. 
That's what uh, Sprout City Farms does. Uh, they help to donate some of their portion of food each year from different farms that they have. So that, that's the portion that they're working on. Jack Solar Garden mainly sells the electricity. That's how we make our money. And then we donate the rest of the land as leases to these different um, organizations that are learning about this space. Now, I recently did a story about Ponderosa Mobile Home Park where they had, um, you know, the first solar panel garden providing access to this kind of electricity for, um, you know, impossible. It's impossible for a mobile home to have a solar panel on top. And it's super expensive also for people. Yeah. So how can you tie this, you know, government idea with what you're doing here? Access to... Access to solar energy. To, exactly, to promote agriculture. To promote agriculture. Um, I mean, there's millions of acres of land that are destined to be underneath solar panels in our country. Um, and that land could be useful. And that's what we're showing here. And that land could be provided as access to different local organizations, to folks that are interested in using that land, as long as people, especially solar owners, uh, are able to trust communities and figure out how to put in place the different ways in which people can work safely within solar rays. It is an active, high-voltage system, but there are ways to help improve the safety conditions. And the solar panels can also provide uh, better safety to, um, to farmers by having more shade that they can work in all day long. I know that in Fort Collins, they also did on purpose, make it friendly for butterflies. And I see tons of butterflies in, in this solar panel garden. So if you can tie it together with conservation and the need of pollinators. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you have vegetation that's growing as opposed to beat down land that's been graded and, and destroyed, then you can have flowers that uh, people are able to, um, flowers that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, pollinators can be attracted to and help pollinate to create food as well as to provide uh, forage for those pollinators. So, I mean, just basically using the space underneath solar panels as opposed to leaving it neglected and beaten down uh, that, unfortunately, a number of solar rays do. During the walk, we hear from Alison Jackson as she discusses the importance of educational opportunities offered by the Colorado Agrivoltaic Learning Center, which aims to teach students about alternative energy. It's called the Colorado Agrivoltaic Learning Center. Um, we have three main pillars that we're trying to reach out to. So we have first community members. So every Saturday we have an open tour that people can sign up for. Um, and people come from all over the country to learn more about this. So last week we had some professors from California. We had some landowners from Vermont. A lot of people that are interested in um, developing their own agrivoltaic project or people that are researching um, like land use and how you can increase um, community acceptance of solar panels in their community. Um, we also had a, um, from Oregon, they're working on developing a system that is cable mounted to go over cattle ranch areas. So just the diversity of community members that come here to learn has just been really inspiring to see. We also work with policymakers, so we obviously had to work very closely with city and county of Boulder to get this approved. We're trying to find ways that we can reach out to counties nearby and create land use codes that are more uh, progressive and more inclusive of agrivoltaics as well. And then our last one is my main focus is education. So I was a former teacher for 10 years, and so I really want to do the heavy lifting for teachers so that they can bring students out here and they can learn 
um, about agrivoltaics, about the different microclimates under, and I'm gonna do all of the heavy lifting of the standards that this applies to, um, getting them hands-on and kind of designing at their own mini experiment here on site. And so that's um, what I've been focused on. We've had a few summer programs that came out and these were students that were interested in renewable energy as a career. So getting these kids out here on site, seeing solar panels, seeing not just the careers that are in renewable energy, but to see all of our researchers that are out here, all of our farmers that are out here, all the students have just been super inspired in terms of what kind of careers are out there for them in the future in kind of the renewable and environmental science agriculture spaces. Byron Kominek says that not only students learn from this unique experience, but also solar companies and even policymakers. Uh, thinking about having students coming out and being inspired within a solar rate, we have solar companies that come out mm -hmm. and people are working in the solar industry that have never been in a solar yeah. rate before. And then this gets to be the first one they ever see. So I hope we're spoiling them on that kind of thing. Uh, but we've had yeah, a variety of different solar companies from large scale to small scale. Uh, we've had people fly in from overseas to come out to visit what we're doing. We've done presentations uh, from uh, online uh, presentations from Korea to Germany to South Africa to all across the U.S. Trying to explain more about Jack Solar Garden, how we got started, how other people could do something similar. So as uh, Allison was mentioning, part of that outreach is to policymakers. Uh, last year, we had Governor Jared Polis come out. Uh, he signed legislation pertaining to uh, mainly soil health, but also to agrivoltaics. They put in $150,000 towards agrivoltaics research in the state of Colorado. This last year, uh, Senator Chris Hansen tried to uh, push through some more legislation pertaining to agrivoltaics. It didn't quite pass the House, but my understanding is next season that they're going to try again on that. Um, but we have a variety of people that love coming out here and seeing what we have going on. Last season, we had over a thousand people that came out on tours. We reached out to another thousand people virtually. Uh, this year, we've had over 500 people so far. We're, we're hoping to hit that 1500 or so mark. Uh, so please tell your friends that they, they're welcome to come out on public tours. Um, and one thing that we always love to have people do when they come out that uh, um, is to leave their mark. So you're able to put down your name, the date on one of these things. You're able to see high school students, to solar developers, to neighbors, uh, to the, as I mentioned, the mayor of Netherlands for the second time. Uh, all sorts of different folks are coming out here. And so we have some markers in our pockets so that you all can find one of these next few posts to be able to sign your name sign and date so folks can see you up. And then uh, do note that the winner has a harsh time on some of these signatures, so you're going to have to come out next year to put it down again. <laughs> okay. So here you this go, friends. Awesome. Everybody that hadn't been out here before, come on up. All right. Go for it. Yeah. Have you done that yet? I have, yeah. You have? Anyone else? You have. There you go. Go ahead. There you go. Or go find your name. See if it's still there. Ah. <laughs> Our farm is 24 acres in size, uh, so we have three pastures. This is an eight-acre pasture, four acres of solar array infrastructure. Um, of that, there's about two acres that uh, Sprout City Farms has been using. Uh, the different research plots are about a quarter acre apiece. Uh, so how many? That makes roughly two acres in size for okay. the the research partners. 
So about 50% of it is, is research, 50% of it is uh, crop production. But with that, I appreciate you all coming out, having a chance to look at all this. And as we walk down, feel free to continue asking questions to our different research I do have a question for here. you because you are into and, uh, education uh, and promotion of that. Why is it key for the new generations to look at this as, you know, maybe a solution of the reality of climate change, the dry outs that are coming, the fires that are um, predicted, and uh, the fires that have been predicted and the devastation that sadly is something that we cannot stop. Yeah, I feel like students, you know, un understand climate change and they know that it's such a big problem, but being here on site gives them hands-on experience with ways that we can solve this problem. You know, like it's not going to take one technology, it's going to take a whole lot of different technologies. And so having them see the renewable energy um, in, in action and then also seeing ways that we can take carbon out of the air using our grassland tech, just regular grasslands. It's been, it's a small way that you can start to tackle that, right? It's not, it seems like such an insurmountable problem that it just feels like, oh, we're just going to throw up our hands and do nothing. But there are people that are doing small things. If lots of people are doing small things, it can make a difference in terms of the big problem of climate change. David Glickson with National Renewal Energy Laboratory explains why this is an issue of equity. My name is David Glickson from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. So uh, as we transition to a, a, a new way of, of generating and using energy, we need to make sure that um, as we are transitioning to decarbonized electric system, that we're bringing everybody in our communities and everyone in our country and everyone around the world on, on board with that and making sure that there are ways for everybody to take advantage of, of those energy sources. You mentioned community solar. That's one way for, for people that don't own their homes and can't put solar on a roof or um, live in multi-unit multi housing. Uh, it's one way for them to, to access solar power. Um, so we're working with the, the U.S. Department of Energy to, to develop... Um, energy transition equity solutions, um, basically a roadmap strategy for how to move that forward and make sure that no one's being left behind. Megan Shipansky, a professor at Colorado State University, walks us out of the farm, reflecting on the unique setting of Jack's solar garden, which integrates food, energy, water, and conservation. Uh, you know, the three things why this is innovative, mm -hmm. but it's also unique in Colorado mm -hmm. and in the United States. Give me your name. Uh, I'm Megan Chapansky, Associate Professor at Colorado State University. And this sighting is unique, but also represents a large part of the Western U.S., where it's on an urban fringe or peri-urban area, we call it. Water is limiting. There's land pressure. There's water pressure. Um, there's populations with large energy demands. So this is a unique setting in which to think about how we integrate food, energy, and water production, conservation, all within um, a landscape now, setting. Is this um, something that we have to look forward as the climate changes? It increases in, you know, dry outs, more forest fires. And yeah, I think this is 
what we call a multiple land use. And I think we're going to have to see more and more of that where we get more functions from the same piece of land. And this is nice because so far the research shows that it's a largely a win-win where we can actually benefit from the microclimate of the solar arrays to improve our water conservation and our food production. One thing we haven't talked about yet is we're seeing increased frequency of intense hail events. Solar panels provide amazing hail protection from some of those summer hail storms. So I think there's a lot of unintended benefits or co-benefits from co-locating our energy with our food production. Uh, I think we're going to see, I mean, we already know we have a need for renewable energy sources, and that's going to increasingly grow. One thing we've noticed that we really need to work on is participatory processes in developing these with farmers, because energy production and conserving farmland haven't always been beneficial to to each other. And so there's been some hesitation in terms of solar companies wanting to develop large areas for solar that pushes out farmland. And so we're trying to create new conversations on how we can preserve farmland while also getting solar energy. So there has to be a lot of important stakeholder dialogue, stakeholder um, conversations in developing these agrivoltaic systems. Now, is this really the biggest one in Colorado and in the United States? Yes, this is the largest solar garden farm in the U.S. at this point. That's the reason people come from all over the world to check it out. Yeah, and as a land-grant institution, we get a lot of requests from landowners. And so it's been a great partnership with Byron here because we can send some of those queries to him. He sends some to us. So it's been a huge amount of interest across landowners. That's very cool. Thank you again. And finally, um, you know, last thought about why is this urgent? It's urgent if we want to have sustainable futures where we can have healthy communities, healthy environments, um, and healthy food production all in the same land space. The Trends Podcast series is made possible with support from the KGNU listener members. For KGNU, I am Rosana Longo-Better. <laughs>